This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hello, this is Richard Ingebretson from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Welcome to our AWS podcast series. We always want to remind you to go to wildmedu.org to look at the programs and the courses that you can study to learn about wilderness medicine and be safe in the backcountry. We want to do a quiz. One of the things that we really emphasize in our programs is that students learn. Uh, uh, and the best way to learn, of course, is to be quizzed. Uh, you know, the, if you get asked a question and you don't know the answer, then you start, you know, looking for that answer. So uh, let's go ahead and start uh, with a quiz and see just how uh, good you are and uh, learn about some subjects. Uh, there'll be a whole series of these in our podcast uh, series. So uh, uh, start looking uh, for those. And uh, uh, we'll begin with uh, one that I think most people would say is uh, pretty simple, and that is uh, which medicine has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration, FDA in the United States, for the treatment of giardiasis? Most people know this one. I think, hopefully, tenetazole, uh, metronidazole, uh, furazolidone, uh, quinacrine, paromyosin, and albendazole. So which one of these drugs has been approved? Tenizol, metronidazole, uh, furazolidone, quinacrine, uh, paromyosin, and albendazole. Which is, is it? I think that most people would say metronidazole, but that is actually not the right answer. Uh, tenetazole is the correct answer. It's the only uh, medicine approved by the FDA for the treatment of giardiasis. Uh, it is highly effective, greater than 90% effective rate. It's given as a single dose, and it is very, very well tolerated with a very low uh, side effect profile, um, actually. And so um, uh, most people are going to give uh, uh, metronidazole, which is a very common uh, uh, treatment for giardiasis. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes, of course, it's called flagell. It has an efficacy rate of 75 to 100%. Some people don't respond very well to this at all, but it has very terrible GI side effects, such as nausea, metallic taste, as well as dizziness and headaches. So most people don't uh, uh, tolerate this drug very well. So if you can get uh, uh, tinidazole, uh, it's a better drug and better tolerated. Okay, next question. Let's see how you do. So uh, you and your friends decide to go on a river trip. You want a clothing fabric that will absorb water <clears throat> and insulate even when wet. So ask it again. You and friends decide to go on a river trip and you want a clothing fabric that will absorb water and insulate even when wet. Which type of fabric does this? Wool, silk, polyester, or cotton? I'll ask them again. So you want a, you want a clothing fabric that will absorb water and insulate even when wet. Wool, silk, polyester, or cotton? Most people know this. Wool. Wool will absorb a lot of water. Uh, merino wool is capable of holding 30% of its weight in water absorption before the wearer can even fill it on their skin. In fact, even with the water that has been absorbed, the wool maintains insulation, which is a huge plus for this material. Wool is great outdoor material, and uh, you should look for it. 80% of the material is trapped air. It's wind resistant, which is very, very nice. Many people use wool as their base layer. 
it was, a, I think, once maligned for being itchy. Uh, but ultra-fine merino wool is itch-free, naturally breathable, moisture-wicking, fairly fast-drying, and not prone to odors. It's pros. Uh, it's very inexpensive. It's wind-resistant. It's cons. It's, uh, it is more difficult to dry than other fabrics. And the other con is that it gets pretty heavy uh, when it's wet. Wool is just amazing. And if you ever own it, it's uh, inexpensive. It's a handsome material uh, that you can use. And they can dye it in, in multiple colors. <clears throat> so um, go to question three. Which fabric imitates wool? Uh, which fabric imitates wool? In other words, we create one. What is it? Synthetic fibers, fleece, microfiber, or synthetic down? Synthetic fibers, fleece, microfiber, or synthetic down. Which one imitates wool? And the answer to that is fleece. Fleece is the correct answer. Synthetic fiber, which, uh, uh, which uh, imitates wool, it has 3D fibers that look like those in wool. It's warm when wet but it doesn't absorb moisture. It dries very quickly. In fact, if I dry a, a fleece jacket, I uh, wash it and put it in the, uh, just in the rinse cycle, it's pretty dry when it comes out. It dries so rapidly. That's its really big pro. It's, it's as warm as wool, but half the weight. And that is its other pro, and it's very inexpensive. Its con is that it has no wind resistance. Fleece is a really good product. It's, it dries quickly. It's warm. It's very light. It's inexpensive, but it, the wind goes right through it. And when I take it onto, like if we're hiking in the in warmer weather, we get to the summit of a you know a, a mountain or you're out where the wind is blowing, boy, you can feel it. But it's still a very, very, very good material. And again, it comes in multiple colors. It comes in a, a different products. So a fleece is a, a really good outdoor product. <clears throat> okay, true or false? This is question number four. <clears throat> um, true or false? Cotton kills true or false cotton kills well the answer to that is false cotton does it, it, cotton does not kill cotton does not effectively wick moisture away from your skin it doesn't dry quickly and it is a very poor insulator uh conductive all of which makes it a bad outdoor clothing conductive heat loss will happen quickly in that situation in reality cotton does not kill hypothermia kills, right? It's easier to get hypothermia when you wear cotton, not because it doesn't insulate you as well as other materials, but because it just doesn't insulate you as well when it is wet. So cotton does not kill, hypothermia does, but it's a lot easier to get hypothermia uh, if you are wearing cotton. Cotton is a great material uh, if you want to uh, wear it around, uh, uh, you know, the campsite and when you're not worried about getting wet but if you're out uh, hiking or if you're going to get wet or you're uh you know really plodging along you want to avoid cotton and for that reason uh beware of the disguises of cotton though it, it it's in corduroy denim flannel duck blends 50 50 blends so watch for cotton and you you really don't want it in backcountry uh work unless at night you just put on a cotton t-shirt before you hop into bed or something like that and you're sleeping bag. It, it's very calm. It's very pretty. It's very thing to wear around the city and in the front country. It's just not a very good backcountry material. Uh, so let's do, uh, rather than a question, let's do a name uh, that disease. See if you can do this one. 
Uh, you were hiking with a friend. You're at about 12,000 feet or 4,000 meters. He's a 42-year-old male who complains of shortness of breath. And then he says he has a wet cough. Yeah, and so you're pretty high. I mean, 4,000 meters is high, uh, 12,000 feet. He had similar symptoms in the recent past. He says that his chest feels tight with, and has congestion. You can hear crackles when he breathes. He is a little blue in color. You went up the mountain very fast. So what is the name of this disease? Uh, what is your best guess? This should be pretty straightforward. He has high-altitude pulmonary edema. And uh, this is one you want to watch out for. This is a killer. And in uh, the area where I live, we lose people at 10,000 feet or, you know, 3,300 meters. People die of this. And uh, so you want to watch this one. Factors that contribute to the development of HACE or HAPE are genetic, which are meaning there you just get them. Uh, prior development of HAPE. In fact, I think that if you look at all the causes of high altitude pulmonary edema, um, one of the biggest one of those is uh, having had it before. <clears throat> if you've had it once before, that really predisposes you for whatever reason to getting it again. If you go up fast, that is another very, very high risk factor. Going up slow is essential in uh, if you're hiking and going up high, you got to go up slow and watch your ascent rate. And then going up high. Uh, you know, we don't see HAPE or HACE for that matter at 2,000 meters or 6,000 feet roughly or less. It's it's rare. But if you go up to like these guys did to 4,000 meters or 12,000 feet really rapidly at that high altitude, uh, the uh, the risk factors are big. And in, in this scenario, the, the person who developed it had had it before. So if you're and you're pushing hard, that also is a risk factor. Uh, the best, the one though is the prior development of hate, and that's something that you want to watch. So the treatment is to go down instantly, even if it's dark, raining, or snowing. You've got to go down quick. Don't wait. Don't wait till morning. That's how people die. Uh, rapid descent is essential. The big problem that we often see is people say, "Well, if you're not feeling better in the morning, we'll take you down." And then they wake up and they're near dead, or they are dead. And so uh, you've got to go down. And any descent is useful, even if it's minimal. Uh, any descent is better than staying at the altitude uh, that you're at. Don't wait till morning. Patients improve uh, quickly as they go down. But the best way to prevent altitude illness, either AMS, which progresses to haze, or high-altitude pulmonary edema, is to, is to go up slowly and acclimatize. And the treatment is to go down quickly. Uh, water leaks out of our uh, cells into our brain, into our skin, to our lips, our fingers, our cheeks, into our lungs. The only places that we worry about it for being deadly is if the water leaks into our brain <clears throat> or into our lungs. It's, a, it's an issue of less pressure, not a lack of oxygen. It's a question of less pressure. And that is the reason why those things happen. So this guy had hate, pulmonary edema. And uh, going down is the treatment. So remember, it's a lack of pressure is the root of uh, this condition. So let's do another question. A twenty-year-old lady comes, twenty-eight-year-old lady comes to you with a fine rash that covers most of her body. It has been going on and off for several weeks. It is very itchy and keeps her up at nights. It's because she's scratching. She has tried everything possible. She cannot get rid of it. She is not allergic to anything that she knows of. She's had nausea and diarrhea as well. 
She also complains of abdominal pain. She is a hiker and recently hiked in the eastern United States uh, in, a, in the state of Tennessee. She knew that she had one tick on her, but no other encounters with insects. She took some ibuprofen after the hike for sore muscles. She has not changed her eating habits at all. Uh, she has not tried different soaps or lotions. A very likely cause of this is, <clears throat> let's go down a list. So this is a, a, a horrible rash, abdominal symptoms after hiking and having a tick on you, taking some medicine. Uh, uh, let's go through Lyme disease, very prominent in the eastern United States. Food allergy, medicine allergy, atomic, atopic dermatitis from a very high humid area in Tennessee, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So, which is also uh, prevalent in that area. Lyme disease, food allergy, medicine allergy, atopic dermatitis from humid humidity in eastern United States, especially in the state of Tennessee, and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Well, the answer to this is a food allergy. This is something that is increasingly coming a, a very serious problem in the United States and other parts of the world, but particularly the United States, where we have a very specific tick called the Lone Star Tick. This uh, lady very likely has what's called alpha-gal syndrome, AGS. This is a uh, due to being exposed to the alpha-gal sugar. Alpha-gal is really galactose alpha-1,3-galactose. This is a sugar molecule found in meat, pork, beef. And those kinds of animals that have a, a hoofed uh, foot. So the alpha-gal syndrome is a very, very serious, potentially life-threatening allergic reaction. Because like any allergic reaction, this can go on and cause uh, a problem such as anaphylaxis or uh, you know, a generalized allergic reaction. What happens is people become sensitized to red meat after being bit by the Lone Star Tick that has previously bitten a hoofed animal. Now, the Lone Star Tick is found in the Southeast United States. There may be a tick in Europe that is seeing this, but right now we know that the Lone Star Tick is the one that does this. So it is the only tick in the United States known to carry the sugar and sensitize people. So after a person eats red meat, after the tick bite, they develop a serious allergic reaction. And these, uh, they get abdominal symptoms, pain, cramping, diarrhea, and they get a, a rash that won't go away. It doesn't respond very well, and it's serious. So you have to treat this as a food allergy, but it's but it's more than that. It's not because they ate the food. It's because they, they were bitten by the tick and then ate the food. And you have to recognize this. So the, the Lone Star Tick, if it's in the area where your wilderness experience is happening, you're at risk for developing the alpha-gal syndrome. They usually, the symptoms come on two to six hours after eating. They can be different from person to person, which makes it even crazier to diagnose. They can range from very mild to life-threatening, uh, or some people may not even have an uh, allergic reaction after every alpha-gal exposure. The data on this is coming out. We urge you to watch for it and make sure that you're watching to see where the, uh, the bone star tick is and uh, see if you develop any kind of allergy after you come back from your wilderness ex experience. Uh, hives, itchy rash, very, very itchy is the, really the common theme. It's so itchy they can't sleep. Nausea, vomiting, heartburn, indigestion, diarrhea, those abdominal symptoms. They sometimes get a cough or shortness of breath or difficulty breathing because as it becomes systemic, a drop in blood pressure, swelling of the lips, throat, tongue, or eyelids, dizziness or faintness, and, so, and often patients 
will have a very severe stomach pain. For watch for this. If if people come to you and say, I've got this rash, uh, question them about their wilderness experience and see if the Lone Star Tick was in that area and if they've been eating a red meat from a hoofed mammal. All right. So another question. Um, what type of lightning kills most people worldwide? Uh, a ground current, direct hit, side splash, upward streamer, or contact with an object that was struck with lightning. So uh, we ask this question because lightning is in the in our world. Uh, and you're in the front country, lightning hits, you jump in the car, go indoors. There is no safe place outdoors when right when uh, when thunder roars, go in, go indoors. Or go to your car is a very safe place. But we want to ask the various kinds of lightning that can kill. Is it the ground current, the direct hit, the side splash, the upper streamer, or contact with an object struck? With lightning, this is important because uh, it is the uh, the ground current. Over half of all people who die worldwide are killed with ground current, and that's because lightning will strike the ground and the current just doesn't stop; it spreads out. So, if you have people in a group under a tent or in a hut, and lightning strikes there, they are all at risk for being hit. One of the worst things you can do if you're outside is go under uh, a a, a a cover like you you had up a, a food cover where you eat and that you can't stay out of the rain if lightning strikes next to that everybody is at risk side splash is next that is it's a tree or a branch or metal pole gets hit in the slides side splash comes over upward streamer which comes out of the ground what's interesting direct strike is as low as three or five percent of all uh lightning it's not the direct strike that kills us or contact with something it is the ground current remember and this is very important that um uh uh when lightning hits it spreads out it's the biggest danger because it affects large people large areas of areas in circles trails up one leg through the body potentially stopping the heart breathing and then going down the other leg so uh, remember that when lightning roars go indoors Another question about lightning, number, question number seven, where do the majority of lightning strikes occur in relationship to the storm? In front of the storm, during the storm, or after the storm? So you see a storm coming and you go, there might be lightning. When do you start worrying? Before, during, or afterwards? And the answer to that is in front of the storm. Most lightning originates at the top of a thunderstorm. That's the area carrying very, very large positive charges. And these are particularly dangerous because it frequently strikes away from the rain. Because uh, before the storm comes, uh, negative charges accumulate on the ground. And that positive lightning is searching for an out. And it looks for that lightning can be five or eight, five or 10 miles away or eight or 10 kilometers from the storm. And the areas that most people do not consider to be a lightning risk area. So uh, it's important to know that positive charges at the top look for negative charges you could be in blue sky 10 miles eight kilometers away and uh still have the risk of lightning when lightning roars uh go indoors and if you're in the back country if you can get to a car go to a car spread apart don't um get all together so if a ground current won't get everybody uh but the main thing is to avoid it so um well uh question number eight 
what has been approved for for use as mosquito repellent by the U.S. Center for Disease Control? There are three. And I'll give you the three choices of the three. Deet, Bacardine, oil of lemon, eucalyptus. That's one choice. The other choice is Deet, IR3535 or Bacardine, or Deet, oil of lemon, eucalyptus, and citronella. So the first one is Deet, Bacardine, oil of lemon, eucalyptus, Deet, IR3535, Bacardine, Deet, oil of lemon, eucalyptus, and citronella. Which one of those three packages gives uh, you the best protection against mosquitoes? The, the three that have been approved. Well, the answer is DEET, picaridine, and oil of lemon eucalyptus. These are the three repellents that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control recommend as being safe and effective for use in repelling mosquitoes. DEET works because mosquitoes don't like the smell of it. Picaridine works as a receptor blocker, and oil of lemon eucalyptus works by blocking mosquitoes' chemical receptors. All work, but the gold standard is DEET. There's no question that DEET is that really rules all on um, uh, preventing uh, bites. Uh, and if you're going to an area where there's malaria or very deadly diseases, you want to put on DEET, you know, maybe 30 or 35% DEET. Picardine is, is good for those areas where uh, you don't have to worry so much about the mosquitoes. Uh, and then oil of lemon eucalyptus is the same. Uh, IR3535 is marketed as Skin So Soft Bug Guard Plus, and this has uh, a half-life of about 20 minutes to six hours. Overall, it's less effective than 12.5% DEET, but you can't put the three approved repellents on babies under two months. So you can put Skin So Soft on, and while it's not great, it's better than nothing, but it's better than to keep babies covered up. Citronella oil is a natural extract to put on babies, uh, but it only works about 40 minutes, so it needs to be reapplied often. It's much, much less effective than DEET. So DEET is great. It is the best. Picardine is very good. Eucalyptus lemon oil is very good also, but DEET is what you want if you're going to, if you're really scared about like malaria. But IR3535 is safe for babies, but keep those babies uh, um, uh, covered up. Now, that is uh, an awful lot of questions that we did. Uh, we're going to end uh, this uh, at this time. We will provide you more qu uh, quizzes uh, for you to study and learn from as you study wilderness medicine with the University of Utah School of Medicine. Remind you, go to wildmedu.org. Please take some of our classes, look at our materials, and learn and study wilderness medicine so you can be stay uh, safe outdoors. And again, we say uh, thank you for listening. Thank you.